Hello everyone and welcome to the show. Uh, today I am actually joined by Robert Stutz, who is running for Congress. Um, you're actually our first nationwide candidate on the show. So that's really cool. It's cool for me, glad to be here. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. Um, what got you into politics? Or actually, let's start about your background. Let's do the whole, are you a native Montanan? Because we hold that against people for some reason. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm native. I mean, I was born on a Marine Corps base, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. I got here when I was two. Um, you know, lived in Billings, lived in Belfry, lived in Libby. So you can call me what you want. <laughs> I, I'd call that native. Um, of course, you know, I'm one of those carpetbaggers who moved here when I was five, so, uh, and then moved away. Um, so you've been in Montana a lot. You've lived on all parts of the state, really, from rural all the way to some of our more urban areas. And you, tell us about your background in, in government, which isn't a background in politics, per se. Well, it's not. Let me, um, let me just give a little bit of a background about where I've lived in Montana and how that sure. transitions to some other things I've done. So Billings is my hometown. That's where I moved when I was two. I lived in a little town called Belfry outside of Red Lodge. It's a really small ag town. Um, with the bats. With the Belfry bats. <laughs> with the Belfry bats. And, and I lived for a year up in Libby. Um, do you know their mascot? Um, I, I should, but I don't. I'll, I'll give you a, a clue. It, it rhymes with joggers. Mm, uh, loggers. Loggers. <laughs> so I was up in Libby. Uh, that was the year Mount St. Helens erupted. And then when I was a teenager, my parents separated, and I did something uh, that I'd never done before. I traveled overseas because my mom went back to work that she had been doing before my parents were married, which was working for U.S. embassies um, overseas. Oh, wow. And that's actually how she met my father. She worked so at the United States embassies. He was a Marine Corps embassy guard. Oh, very cool. So you're not only a military brat, but you're a State Department brat. <laughs> you've got it coming from I'm both not, sides. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm sure. I've, I'm from a military family and a State Department family. You'll have to ask other people about whether I'm a brat or not. <laughs> I mean that with all due love. Of course. Um, when, when you say brat, I think of the old Subaru car truck combinations from the oh, late 70s, early 80s. They still 80s. make those, actually. Well, well they, they call them Bajas now. Yeah. Uh, they're such fun little cars. Okay, so. You're, so I, I've been I'm, around politics your entire life and well, government. Well, so there's this foray that I go on overseas, right. really opens my eyes. I moved from Billings to Germany, where my mom is stationed. And then I moved from Germany to Jordan in the Middle East, where she's next stationed. And so I tell folks that I graduated from high school in Jordan. but. It's not Jordan, Montana. <laughs> and so when I go to college, I study international relations because I have this really eye-opening experience, but there are two sides to this experience. On the one hand, I'm really learning a lot about the international world in a way that I never knew before. On the other hand, I'm really learning a lot about Montana in a way that I never knew before because you take things for granted. You know, you take for granted uh, open space when you live here, but then you move to a, a cr the crowded um, you know, Rhineland of Germany, and pretty soon everybody is on top of each other. There isn't as much open space, and you're like, wow, I really miss the peace and the quiet and the dark skies at night. And then you move to Jordan in the Middle East, and you really realize that there's a lot to representative government, and there's a lot to democracy, and there's a lot to civil rights 
that you don't get uh, in Jordan, but you take for granted when you live in Montana. And so it opened my eyes both to what the international world was all about, but also what we've got here in Montana. Right. Uh, what's interesting about that, I think that one of the reasons that I like living in Montana again, and that was not always true. I mean, when I was growing up, I couldn't wait to get out of here. And after high school, I went to college at MSU, and then I left the state. I was like, I gotta go. And I lived in Oregon, in Portland, loved it, downtown, it was great. Lived in Phoenix to recover from the rain from Portland. Uh, then lived in Caribou, Maine, and then lived in Houston, Texas, then a bit of time in San Fran uh, Sacramento, California. And living in all of those various places and then coming back to Montana, you really do get a, a great appreciation for what we have. And, it, it, and I didn't appreciate it until I went away. I think anybody who says that they appreciate it does, still doesn't understand what we have here. You know, so you know, having lived other places I think is a definite plus for anyone. Well, I think so too, just because you know, it's what worked for me. It's what really opened my eyes. And so um, you know, I've had the fortune of seeing a lot of different corners of the world. I lived in Germany. I lived in the Middle East. I've worked at uh, the US Embassy in London. One of the perks of having a mom who works at embassies overseas is that when you're taking a break from college and you go home to see your mom, you can pick up a job at an embassy. And so I worked one summer on agri agricultural trade policy with the US Embassy in London. And then I worked uh, during the war in Serbia. I went there because I had a family visa and it was difficult for people to get into the war zone to work. But since I was family, I was able to go, and so I worked at the embassy there for a while. When I graduated from college, they invited me back to go and finish, finish up some projects. So I went back to Serbia and the, the war area, area and I um, was able to wrap up some projects there. So I've worked at the U.S. Embassy in Belgrade, Serbia, in, in London, and my other foray overseas was, um, I went to Pakistan for a while. Oh, wow. I moved to Lahore, Pakistan just for a short time to teach elementary school and um, that's it. I don't, so I mean, you, I don't know what to tell you. It was, no, that's, it was that's such awesome. a different experience. It, it is. And so you have all these experiences that, that obviously shaped your worldview. And then you're back in Montana. And you had worked, well, you came back to the States, and then you worked in several different positions that moved you through the various levels of both state and national government, correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. I, you know, I went to law school when I came back from Pakistan. Uh, As one does. Right. <laughs> well, if those are your choices, right, work uh, in Pakistan yeah, or, or go, go to law, law school. school. I think I'd choose law school, too. And <laughs> uh, I met my wife my future wife, and she and I both graduated from the University of Montana in 2000. I graduated from law school, she graduated with a biology degree. We were married uh, one week after I graduated from law school, two weeks after she graduated with her biology degree, so it was a very busy sort of May back in 2000. <laughs> and then I, I worked at a local law firm in Missoula, and it's a law firm that I had worked with before and during law school. And then I went from that work at the local level to state work as an assistant attorney general with the Montana Department of Justice under Mike McGrath. And I moved from that state job to a statewide job with a nonprofit, the Montana School Boards Association, representing school districts around Montana. 
And I went from that statewide work in education to national level work in the general counsel's office at the U.S. Department of Education. And then I was invited back to be the chief legal counsel for the Montana legislature in, for the 2010, um, when I started in 2010, it was for the 2011 session. Right. And that, or, or the session from hell, as I like to call it. <laughs> and that's what inspired me to run for Congress. And so I've got this experience at a variety of levels, but um, I also have private sector experience. Mm -hmm. I own a small business uh, here in Montana. I own my own private law firm, Stutz Law Office, and I've worked in at private law firms and other private businesses in Missoula. And my first job after college, the one that I left when I was invited to go back to Serbia and finish up those projects was also in the private sector in Billings, my hometown, because that's what you do when you graduate from college. Right, you get a job, <laughs> or at least you hope you do. Uh, so, didn't you also work for uh, the national, uh, some part of the federal government as well? Yeah, that was the United States Department of Education okay, yeah. at the, in their general counsel's office. Okay. So, you've seen government at all of its levels, from local all the way up to international. And you know that there are some things that it's doing well, there are some things that it is not doing well, and you've decided to enter this race because, one would hope, you can make them better. but. <laughs> having having uh, acknowledged how much is going wrong, how are you going to move that mountain? Well, so in my campaign, I want to put people first because I think that government has gotten off track. Representative democracy is supposed to work for people because, and this is what I did in my nonpartisan work with the legislature and this is what I've done professionally, I've made sure that constitutional rights are upheld because that is the basis for our society. The people grant rights to the government and they give the government responsibilities. Excuse me. They grant responsibilities to the government and they make sure that their rights are protected. And so, you know, in Montana, for example, our state constitution has a, a number of individual rights that Montanans expect will be respected. And in my campaign, I try to put people first, and not just protecting their constitutional issues, their constitutional rights, and making sure that their uh, government is doing what we've asked them to do, but also the politics of it. I don't take money from special interest groups. I don't sign pledges for special interest groups because I want people to know that I've got their interests. I think that's great. Um, I have a huge, uh, I don't know if issue is the right word, I have a huge problem with uh, the special interest groups that come out and say, well, we're going to support you because you've signed this piece of paper, especially because, one, the piece of paper means two things. One, that you're willing to be bought, I think, quite frankly, you know, and the price at that point is simply, you know, well, you have this group's endorsement, but you're willing to be bought. You're willing to say that you're going to toe the line on this issue. And um, as, it, I don't know if you listened to it, but I was discussing with, um, Mike Miller, some of these issues, you know, you end up voting in a way that seems contrary to what you're asking for, but it's because you want to go about it another way and you need to stop what's going on. And so the votes are binary, but the issues, you know, so it's black or white, and but the issues are all these shades of gray, and we don't have a lot of chance to get out and tell people about the uh, nuances of why we're doing that stuff. So 
I know that you're big into social media. Talk a little bit about how you're going to stay in communication with your constituents. If, if people are so important to you, how do they get in touch with you and how do you reach back to them? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the first messages that I convey in my campaign through every means available is to let people know that I've got a foundation for what I'm doing. And so I've got that up on my website. I do it when I'm in forums. I do it when, you know, through Twitter and Facebook. But people need to know that a politician isn't just pandering, isn't just saying whatever rhetoric the group in front of them wants to hear. And so that's why I keep getting back to this idea that I've got a roadmap for what people want from government. They've already given it to me, and I need to, the best of my ability, to follow it. And so one of the ways that I'll be able to communicate to people, in addition to all the Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, email, <laughs> all the things we do, is my actions will show them how I'm representing them. And so when I do something like not take PAC money, it's telling people something. It's showing them that I'm willing to do something that's politically inconvenient because I believe it's important. There's a message there. And when I don't sign the pledges, as, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm telling people and I'm telling those groups something important. And that is, my loyalty is not to this group that I've signed a pledge for because I won't sign the pledge. My loyalty is to doing what I think is best for the people. And we're going to disagree sometimes on policy issues. But if you don't have that foundation, if you don't show people through whatever communication means that you've got their backs, then you, are you really representing the people that you're supposed to be representing in your position? Well, no. Then that would be why I'm not voting for Reberg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not voting for him either. But there are lots of reasons. Uh, I tend to be a one-issue voter, and you know, if you want, do you want to talk about issues? Or? Well, let me ask you this. I mean, what you're a one-issue voter? What's your issue? I've become a one-issue voter. I never was one before. Um, you notice how we switched roles, there? right? Exactly. So, welcome to the show now being hosted <laughs> by Rob. Um, the the one I've become a one-issue voter because it's absolutely the issue that drives me bonkers, and I kind of lose my mind about it. Um, to the extent that I'm going to have to answer the question really slow in order to not swear, which I'm trying to do on this podcast. Um, the one issue is equal rights for gays and lesbians and transgender, and it's just basically human rights for all of humanity. And I don't understand how anybody, anybody, can say that that is something that's worth voting on, because it's not. It's absolutely a right. And for anybody to stand up and tell me that I do not have the same rights as them absolutely pushes me over whatever boundaries I have on civility, and I, I tend to go off. Um, and I call people exactly what I think they are. I use inappropriate language in inappropriate places. If I was ever to meet the Pope, I would probably use the F word followed by bigot. Um, immediately, those two, right, those two words, right behind the word you are, you know, it's, that's exactly how I see the world. And the wedge that's been driven between um, the gay community and, or the queer community and the rest of society by organizations like NOM and uh, the Family Research Council, they, it, it makes me crazy because I know people on all sides of every other issue and I know that they're good people, but then it comes down to this and they make such irrational, destructive decisions and it, it absolutely cannot continue because that one issue has literally led to people being Irrational on a level that has gotten us where we are. I really believe that because this wedge issue and this hate has been driven up, that we are literally at a point where if we don't give us equality, 
if we don't make gays, lesbians, transgenders, transsexuals, uh, all of the queer community equal to everyone else, we will continue down this path of destruction. And that's why I've become a one-issue voter, because if you don't stand right on that issue, there is no way that you can stand right on anything else. Because if you don't see all of humanity as being equal at a base level, then you are wrong. And so yes, I've become the one-issue voter that I never wanted to be. I always wanted to be nuanced in politics, and I, want to, I always want to give everybody their chance. That's why I've had Republicans on the show. That's why I don't make the show about me as much as this one is going to be. Sorry about that. But I make this show about, you know, why are you in politics? But when it comes down to it, my equality should never be in question. So what do you think the Constitution says about, we'll say, equal protection or equality of opportunity? Uh, state constitution or federal? You know, let's start with <laughs> Montana. the Montana Constitution. What do you think Montanans have said about equal protection and equality of opportunity and whatever, whatever other values? Well, our Constitution actually says that we, you know, there should be equal protection under the law and that no one should be treated differently based on, on a characteristic that is uh, immutable. Um, plus, then they added in religion, which is completely mutable as evidence of the fact that there is a Protestant religion at all. Um, so I'd like to point out that you know an immutable thing. It really does. It's what, whatever your rights are, they should be equal. Everybody should have them. They are not something that you can lose simply by being. You can lose them by doing, but you cannot lose them by being. And uh, our constitution is pretty straightforward in that. But then in 2000, was it two or four? 2004, uh, the state passed a constitutional amendment to say that marriage as a right which it has been established as a right since Loving v, uh, versus Virginia. Uh, marriage is a right, but it's reserved for only uh, one man and one woman. Um, plus, I really need to look up the language on that, because if that's how it's actually stated, which is how it's stated in Texas, that actually means that only one man and one woman can get married, no others. Would you like me to get a state constitution to peruse during the radio show? I have one. Uh, I'm sure you do. I actually have the federal one on my iPhone. But um, I'd love to look at the language. I'll have to look at the language at some time. But basically, so there's this conflicting part of the Constitution. And what's funny is we're in Missoula tonight. It was a congressional uh, forum. It wasn't really a debate. But you guys, you, you had got lots of good questions. I was pretty impressed. Um, I saw four spines and at least five brains. I was impressed. Um, <laughs> Did I have a spine or a brain or hopefully both? Both. Oh, both. Good. Um, I don't know if you can win, my friend, but you got both. Um, <laughs> the the ACLU case tomorrow is being heard here in Missoula, and uh, it'll be interesting. So by the time this show is out, which will be next Wednesday, so this is coming out on Wednesday the 18th? Yes, Wednesday the 18th. Um, there will be a decision on whether that constitutional amendment actually is in violation of the rest of the Constitution, which I think would be interesting. Um, and great, I would love for the Supreme Court to just look at it and go, no, it's a piece of junk, we have to throw it out. Um, because that really is the right thing to do. Even though the will of the people was to be bigoted, the people really didn't know what they were doing. Well, let me ask you a question. So we've got this state constitutional provision that's um, been argued tomorrow before the Montana Supreme Court right here in Missoula. And I'm not running for a state office. I'm running for a federal office, right, mm -hmm. U.S. Congress. So what do you think the Montana Constitution should tell me as an elected official when I'm going to Washington. And the reason I say that is because you and I have had this conversation and uh, you know, my view right. is that it speaks to Montanans wanting to define marriage as a state issue. 
as marriage traditionally has been a state issue. And when the federal government steps in and tries to define marriage as a federal issue, it steps on what we've done here in Montana, which we've defined as a state issue. You see, the federal government... Well, we do. Okay, I, I know where you're going, and I, and I know your, your reasoning on some of it, but here's the problem that I have with some of your reasoning, is that Loving v. Virginia was a federal case. And the reason it was a federal case is because marriage had been a state issue, but some of the states were doing things that were incompatible with what the other states were doing. And in the great experiment that is democracy, that's how we resolve those issues, is that at the end of the day, one, one source actually will make a decision if that's what's needed. If everybody can't come to it on their own, that's what's needed. And in, you know, the opposite of this is um, the liquor. You know, when uh, we had prohibition and then they released it back, but they made it a state issue on how you're going to manage your, issue, your liquor. And they control how it gets to you because that's interstate and they, they got that. But they, how you want to deal with it inside your state, that's your issue. But then they've stepped in a little bit, you know, well, if you want highway funding, you have to have a 21 for legal drinking age. So there's some iffy things about it. But I really think, I honestly think that the Constitution tells you that. Everyone should be treated equally. And even though the other part of the Constitution is in conflict with that, that other part of the Constitution is actually wrong and can be ignored. Well, <laughs> so that's where I stand on it. I, I, I well, know you have a clever bit of thinking on it. Well, I, you know, my view is that those judicial decisions, those constitutional decisions like the Loving decision, are not something that I will have a say in right, right. as a member of Congress. Right. And so you. Equal protection. So, you're right. Yeah, and, and, and I will give you that. That, right. that is true. That the the legislative and judicial branches are separate. So. Right. <laughs> that's that's a that. separate part of the Constitution that outlines that. But right. what I'm saying is, there are certain things that I can control, and I can't control what the Supreme Court will do. But I can control legislatively. If I win the seat in Congress, I can control, you know, to, the, to an extent. Yeah. To an extent. Um, those issues that come before Congress. And so that doesn't include the judicial cases, that includes legislation. And so um, there's a limit on the type of voice I'll have, but that, limited, that, that is limited to things that come before Congress. So there are certain things I can do. And so back to the original question, I guess, is what can we do in Congress Cool, yeah, and so the, the question that I'm going to give you is, what are you going to do about DOMA? You know, the Defense of Marriage Act, the, the administration has already decided they're not going to, to even defend it. Yes. Um, and then I'll ask you this other question about it in a minute. But So do you think that it should be repealed? You know, I do, okay. and for a variety of reasons. I mean, let's just start with the easy, because Rob always talks about the Constitution perspective. <laughs> is that the people of Montana have spoken on a constitutional level that they want to define marriage, which means that you take marriage out of the federal definition and you treat it as a state issue until a court says otherwise. Says otherwise. And so that is the sort of laboratories of democracy approach where you see uh, Washington and Vermont and New York and you know, a variety of states at the state level addressing it. You have to take the cap off at the national level mm -hmm. if you want to honor what Montanans have already said at the state level. That's, that's, that's one approach. Um, and then once we get the cap removed, we say, okay, is it time for Congress 
to legislate what marriage is? Or do we let the states go their way and let the courts decide? And honestly, that's down far in the future because we still have the DOMA. We still have this cap on the federal definition of marriage. But I can tell you where we're going. When the military recognizes equality for all of its members, irrespective of their sexual orientation, we can see a pretty good arrow in, and, in the course of this direction. And there were no consequences. I mean, the only consequences No, there were there consequences. Of, of people, yes. of gays serving in the military? Yes, there oh, were consequences. What are they? The, well, the most significant consequence of gays serving in the military is that the military has access to the best equipped, best trained uh, workforce available because they take a segment of people who previously were not able to serve and they're able to utilize their skills um, to the best oh. of the military's abilities. <laughs> okay, let me be clear. There were no negative consequences. <laughs> not that I know of. I haven't heard of any. And I know that the Commandant of the Marine Corps mm -hmm. said that he was wrong. He opposed it initially. And uh, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell ended, he, he said he had made a mistake. And there was a really nice article from a spokesperson for the Montana National Guard uh, last October where he said, this is great for us because it really gives us access to the highest quality talent. Well, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, one of the things that, you know, it makes me a little bit crazy that I have to defend my rights. You know, he, and, you know, oh, boo-hoo, here's the white man who's claiming that his rights are being impinged. But they Wait, are. What color are you? Uh, white. <laughs> I know, it's shocking. You can see me in the dark because I glow in it. Um, <laughs> but there is a part of it that absolutely makes me crazy that I'm somehow told that I'm going to be different. And, you know, to all my friends that are different in that way, great, let's be different. But that doesn't mean that our equality is less. Make sense? Yeah. All right. I so mean, the, it sounds, so, if I were to summary, summarize sort of what you're saying, mm -hmm. maybe I'm just making this up, something like celebrate diversity might be able to acknowledge that there are differences and that we all have something useful to contribute. Well, yeah, and you know, we don't want everybody to be the same because that's never gonna get us forward. We're such a great country, we're such a great people because we have all these differences and we allow those differences to bloom and blossom and do amazing things. You can use that phrase, I'll let you. Oh, all right, I'll, I'll, maybe we'll put it on a, a flag, maybe with rainbow colors. Oh, to show uh, all the different yeah, types of people yeah, out there. Exactly. That's, that's interesting. Um, so the other question that I have for you that is related to DOMAs, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, just, just say it's too, too much to get into. Um, I don't understand how the House because Speaker Boehner has decided that he is going to defend this law. I don't understand how they can appropriate money for that without the Senate approving it. Because my understanding of the Constitution is while the legislature decides on the laws and how to spend money, it requires both houses to make that decision, yeah. not one. Yeah, you know, let's not go there. Okay. We're, we've already tackled <laughs> the Constitution and equality, and if you want to get into you know, how spending bills work in Congress. Um, let's do another radio <laughs> show. Okay. So you're obviously on the right side of my one big issue, but how do you stand on the rest of it? What else do you see that Montanans really want you to do that you're going to be able to accomplish when you get to Congress? You, Montana's got this issue that's really at the forefront in a way that 
we don't always appreciate here in Montana. It's sort of like when you left Montana and you got this perspective, and I left Montana, I got this perspective. Nationally, Montana is really at the forefront of standing up to special interests. We're the only state that held our state law limiting corporate spending on elections after the Citizens United decision. And what we've got is Steve Bullock, Attorney General, fighting in court to protect that state law. And then we have John Tester acknowledging the difficulties of running for office without taking the special interest money, fighting the special interests by proposing a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And so in my campaign, when I say I'm new to politics, I'm doing it a different way because we've got an open seat and this is what I would want, and I don't take the money, it's really all three approaches but the same message. How do we push back on special interests in Montana? And that by itself really does a lot for Montana because it not only gives people a choice between politics as usual in Washington, but it puts Montana at the forefront nationally of this movement of people saying we've had enough. And so um, that's one thing that I will do, that's one thing I do do, but it's it, part of a very important um, feeling in Montana amongst the people who say, Washington, enough. Yeah, it, it is very important and it's, um, our history, we happen to have learned very well. And while the rest of the U.S. seems to have forgotten what our history is, we'll be happy to teach them rather than go through it again. <laughs> well, lead by example, we'll say. Exactly. Hopefully. <laughs> That's what we want to do, yes. So what other issues? So we've got uh, Citizens United, uh, the marriage issue, equality issue. What other things are, what do you bring to the table that other people just can't match? One of the things I really emphasize is that Democrats need to win in November so that we can represent middle-class Montanans. You see, the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party is really rich. He's running a traditional campaign that goes to D.C., holds $2,500 a head luncheons for PACs. He worked, he worked for a Bozeman company that sold to a multi-billion dollar California company and made just a lot of money. And you start to say, okay, we've got a rich guy who plays politics as usual, you know, behind closed doors, getting the big bucks. Is that really what Montana wants? And I don't think it is. It's not what I want. And so I try to distinguish myself by putting as much of a contrast between who they would get in the general election if Rob's on the ticket and who would they, would they would get if they have the Republican presumptive nominee, Steve Daines, on the ticket. And so Steve Daines takes the money. I don't from the special interest groups. He signs the pledges for the special interest groups. I don't. He works for this, he worked, he recently left the position, he worked for a multi-billion dollar California company. I own a small business in Montana. He has no public service experience. I've got public service experience working at the local level with school districts 
at the state level with the assistant attorney, uh, as an assistant attorney general and as the chief legal counsel for the Montana legislature, at the national level working on education issues with the U.S. Department of Education, and internationally working at embassies overseas. In addition to my private sector work, in addition to teaching in Pakistan um, for a very brief period of time. So it's this very broad background of experience that he doesn't have. You know, there are other things that uh, distinguish us, but there are some things that um, he won't be able to use against me. You see, he's got a specific plan, he's got a specific message that says, I'm a Montanan, I'm a businessman, I'm not a career politician. And he said it in interviews, and he said it um, in print media, and he said it a lot. He said it a lot. It's a message that works, except it doesn't work because I'm from Montana. I'm not a career politician. I've never run for office before, not a partisan office, and he's run for three. And I run a small business. And so pretty soon you say, wait a minute. Rob nullifies his arguments in favor of him as a candidate, as a nominee to be for the position of representative of Montana because Rob's from Montana, Rob's a small businessman, and Rob's never sought a partisan office, and he, that guy has run for three. He sought the lieutenant governor position in 2008 and lost. He sought the uh, U.S. Senate against John Tester in 2010 and dropped out of that race. And then in 2011, he's, um, you know, throws his name in the hat for the U.S. House race. And so if you're looking for a political outsider, Steve Daines is the wrong guy, so I contrast with I contrast with him in the right ways, and I offer um, a really positive message to Montanans. I work for you, and I don't just say it; I do it. I don't take the money. I champion your values. I've got this foundation that shows you, I'm your guy because I work for you. Hmm, that's great. Sorry, so, that was kind of long. No, that's. The, I get very excited about these things. That, and you should be. You know, one of the things that happens with a lot of people that go into politics is they think that they're going to be able to stand up, wave a flag, and, or wave a magic wand, and it's done. And, and it'll all be better. Um, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know where they get that idea. I know that my general view on politics is you get elected, and then, you know, from you've worked eight months to get elected, or two years, or however long it is. You've worked a full-time job to get elected, and then you get elected, and you have another full-time job of actually doing the work of being that elected official and representing the people and finding out what they want and discussing new issues and coming up with creative ways to change things to make, to overall try to make them better. And it is an amazing amount of work just to even get up there. So you know, these people who think it's going to be easy, I you know, I hate to disagree with you, but you're wrong. And you know, having some sort of passion and excitement for it is a great thing. So you're going to go uh, into this race, and you've got how many other people? Six other Democrats? Is that right? Yeah, seven, seven of total. You? Yeah, you think I could count? I'm visualizing in my head. <laughs> and um, well, you got the math right. Yeah, eventually. MSU student. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're you've got six other people that you're running against, and you've got to. Uh, differentiate yourself from them and there are some people that are taking the pack money and some people that aren't and so you've really embraced social media now you've embraced it for this campaign were you involved in it before I had a, a Facebook page and there have been a few times over the years that I've done little blogs mostly family things they're still 
out there if anybody wants to dig around and <laughs> yeah once it gets on the internet it's there forever well it is you know if you want to see my kids baseball team there's a blog for that if you want to see the old uh, family history photos I scanned uh, for grandma and grandpa there's a blog for that if you want to see the road trip I went on with uh, my two boys um, there's a blog for that so you know I have a little bit of a background with it but uh, I never had a Twitter account before and I never had what my campaign has done, which is really interlink them so that you've got this one social media campaign with a variety of faces, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, uh, the, the webpage sort of ties them all together. Um, yeah, I've done it, I've, I've, I've been involved in social media before, but not to this extent. Okay, and so you've embraced social media as a way to not have to do the fundraising that other people do. Well, you know, I got an interesting question from a reporter. He said, he asked, so do you use social media because you don't have much money? <laughs> and I said, nope, no. No, I use ramen for that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, it's the other way around. I said, I use social media as an efficient, effective way to make my message available across this very large state that we have, the largest population ever for a house district, the second largest size-wise, um, not the richest state, let's face it, and so it's a very efficient way to get the message out there. And because I'm doing it in a way that doesn't cost money, or at least doesn't cost much money once you have it up and running, I don't have to raise as much money because my overhead is low. And if I don't have to raise as much money to run an effective primary campaign, I can spend more time meeting with people. In fact, I've gone to a lot of um, meetings for a variety of groups here in Missoula. I mentioned at the forum today, I'd been to Women's Voices for the Earth, to their offices. I'd been to the Central Labor Council, the, the Union Temple, um, Labor Temple, excuse me. Uh, I'd been to events at public schools. I am going to the powwows because I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to make money because my overhead is low. So it's very liberating to run a campaign with low overhead because I don't have to raise as much money, I can do more, I can get out there and meet people and hear their issues. And I think it makes it more effective. And so, um, you know, the cause and the effect were the exact opposite of what a really seasoned political insider thought, but it's new media. And it has effects that... Um, yeah, it is 2012. You should be able to use it. You should be able to use it. Keep your overhead low. And because your overhead is low, frees you up to do more things that don't necessarily raise a dime. Right. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting in uh, trying to get people to come on the show has been that, you know, I ask people to come on the show. I generally ask them in person because I'd like to meet them first. And then I've been handed off a couple of times to their communications people. I'm like... Uh, you're running for a statewide office uh, in a small district and you have a communications person what kind of money do you have coming in I just don't like I don't get it and I'm like maybe they're a volunteer whatever but I'm a Montanan and the fact that if I come up and talk to you and ask you a question I expect you to be able to say yes or no to me because especially if you're running for a the federal office you're representing me if you can't talk to me I have a problem with that 
So I tend to be of the same, you know, I want social media to be a way for me to communicate with my representatives and senators and with the president and with the governor because I want them to know that when they do something right or wrong in my eyes, I'm watching. And I don't understand why more people don't want that. So I'm very thankful that you're involved in social media. I think it's a great thing. I think more people should embrace it. And if they don't know how to use it, by all means, give me a call. I'll give you a class. Well, for your, for your listeners, just full disclosure, this interview was set up by Kevin calling my deputy assistant outreach coordinator for email relations. <laughs> ah, bullpucky. It was set up by going, you want to go get a burrito at Taco No Soul on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and that, the burritos are good there. Get them with cabbage. All right. We, we agree on that, among other things. Cabbage does add to the burrito. Oh, they're so good. So there's a ton of things that are going on in politics. And uh, provided you make it through the uh, uh, primary, that's the word I'm looking for. Provided you make it through the primary, what's your, what's your goal from June, I guess, 6th on? How, how do you focus the campaign? Are you going to bring in people from the other campaigns? Are you going to bring in some of the people that you've just faced off against to have them help to win? Because I don't think you can do this alone. Not because I don't think you're a great guy, I do, but I know this, it's, it's an uphill battle. You know, how are you going to get the entirety of the Democrats behind you at that point? You know, it's interesting, I don't know, I'm not going to presume anything about your question, but I'm actually not running a campaign by myself, even here in the primary. In fact, I would venture a guess that I've got the largest infrastructure of any of the campaigns in the Democratic primary. I've got people on the ground in Kalispell, Missoula, Great Falls, Helena, Butte, Bozeman, Billings, and Haver doing work for me. And in addition to that, I do have some um, people doing outreach for me in very specific subject areas. I have somebody who um, does outreach to native groups, and I have uh, somebody who's doing outreach with conservation groups. I have somebody who is doing, um, advising me on conservation issues. I have somebody who's advising me on military issues. And so there are people who really believe in my campaign and are willing to help out across the state because they see that as the surest path to victory. Not only do they believe in my message, but they also believe that it's the strongest way to win the election. And so I have to just give a shout out here to all the volunteers in my campaign. But you're right, it's a very good question. After the primary, things will be different. One of the most important things is I will have demonstrated that I can run a very efficient, a very effective campaign but at that point, it's time to start raising a little bit more money. And so I'm looking forward, and I've had the conversation with some of the other Democrats in the race, no matter who wins, we're all gonna be pulling you know, for the nominee. And um, we're gonna step up fundraising. We might not um, have as big of an emphasis on fundraising now, but that'll certainly increase after the general election. But the message will stay the same. The message will still be that Steve Daines is politics as usual and will show that he's politics as usual. And um, you know, it's that contrast that's gonna allow us to win. It's how John Tester won in 2006. You see, money doesn't win elections, votes do. Just ask Conrad Burns. In 2006, John Tester had two and a half million dollars less money than Conrad Burns. He's running against an incumbent. He had a very efficient campaign and a very effective message, 
and he was able to win. And John Tester, John Tester's 2006 campaign is an excellent model for this house race because it shows that it's possible. I think that's great. I think it's, it'll be interesting to see, and, and this is, while I was ancillary to politics in 2008, and, and kind of watched it. I was actually in California at the time, and then 2010 up here, I really didn't, you know, I had a couple of friends running, but I wasn't paying that much attention to it. I was just like, eh, it'll, it'll take care of itself. And then a couple of things fell apart, and I was like, eh, this won't take care of itself. We gotta start being mean. Um, I, I've always wondered how campaigns go from being, you know, the competitors with each other to then, okay, now this is the decision that we've made, this is how we're going forward. And it'll be interesting to see because if you can pull from the other six candidates that you've got, you've got a really, really strong team and you've got a lot of diversity in the state. So if you can pull together after the primary, if everybody, you know, sucks it up and bees and, you know, acts like adults, uh, you can pull together a really amazing team just from those seven people. If you guys are all going to stand together, regardless of who's the final nominee, I think that'll be really incredible. And really, at that point, it becomes, yeah, the Democrats can win. You know, one of the, the winner of the primary, of course, are the six people who get to take a break from campaigning. Then <laughs> there's one person stuck with another, you know, six months or five months of <laughs> campaigning afterwards. And so um, I suspect that uh, I suspect that there's going to be some camaraderie no matter uh, who wins. At least that's what I would do. That's what I will do uh, in the very off chance that somebody else wins the primary. Uh, but, but that being said, you know, there's only one representative. And so somebody has to stand out front and has to take the lead. And it's going to be a difficult road. But in the primary, I've really emphasized that I view the other people in the primary, in the Democratic primary, as my colleagues. And so it's not them who I'm trying to beat. It's Steve Daines who we collectively need to figure out a way to beat because that's what we haven't done since 1994. And so we have to have the conversation now, before the primary, about how are we going to win in November? What are we going to do different because running a predictable race against a predictable candidate is going to produce predictable results. And I've really tried to sharpen the contrast between what I'm doing and who Steve Daines is. And I think that that's, uh, you know, I just view that as the best road to victory, not only in the general election, but then in the primary, I'm explaining to people, no, here's how I win. I've got a plan and I don't hear other people talking about it as much. And that's what we need to do. We need to plan now. So, you know, my argument in the primary election is, I've got a road to victory here in November. It's not guaranteed, but I don't hear another plan out there. And that's probably a better way to do it than, than the current sort of uh, nicety of we don't talk about after the primary. <laughs> so, Well, it's frustrating because if you win every other race, statewide race, which the Democrats have done, except for the House race, and you haven't won that one since 1994, at some point you either have that difficult conversation or the road to victory in November is that much harder because you haven't had the tough conversations up front. Right. So we're coming up on 47 minutes. That's impressive. Let's talk about uh, some, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, the burrito was a pretty good idea. I'm starving. <laughs> uh, I'm too. It's been a long day. So let's go over some of the basics. Your website is? RobStutz.com, mm -hmm. R-O-B-S-T-U-T-Z. 
com. And your Facebook is? Available through robstuds.com. <laughs> okay. We'll put a big, link to that. It's the, the big, big blue F. F. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's your Twitter handle? It's also available through <laughs> robstuds.com, but I actually know that one. That one is rob underscore studs.com. Oh, okay. Um, we will put uh, links to all of those in the show notes. And you do have an Axe Blue page? I have an Act Blue page, but I hardly use it. Okay. It's, you know, that's one of the liberating things about running a campaign that's lean and mean is, um, you know, I, I'm not emphasizing the need to raise a lot of cash. I'm emphasizing, look, <laughs> we can do it despite not having a lot of cash because none of us is going to have more money in November. Right. So the more efficient a campaign we're running now, the more effective we're going to be against a known known, which is... Steve Daines will have more money. <laughs> yep. So, uh, just but just in case you do have an act blue, we'll put I do, <laughs> and it's and there's a link on the Facebook. Okay, uh, excuse me, on the website. Okay, and and on Facebook. Um, you have a calendar of events that are coming. I know you're big I on do. transparency, yep. so you have a calendar of events that's out. We'll put those links. Yes. Where are you going next that you'd like people to know about? Um, when is this being broadcast? Next Wednesday. So okay. So figure from the twentieth on. Really. Yeah. Let's do that. So next Wednesday, next Thursday, mm -hmm. I'm going to be in Phillipsburg at a candidate forum that the Phillipsburg Mail is putting on. Oh, very cool. And not that it'll impress anyone, but at least Kev knows I'm doing this from memory <laughs> because I don't have any pieces of paper. I don't have a calendar pulled up. But, um, <sighs> you know, the scheduling is important. I try to stay on top of that. Right. Then next Friday... I'm going to be in Lewistown for an event that uh, it's the Central Montana uh, Democrats dinner that they're putting on at the golf course there. And then next Saturday, I'm going to the Truman dinner being put on by the Yellowstone County Democrats um, at the Billings Hotel and Convention Center. And then next Sunday, I'm going to the Eastern Montana uh, Democrats dinner in Glendive put on by a a coalition of Eastern Montana Dem Democratic Central Committees. Oh, wow. So that'll be great. So if you happen to be anywhere from Livingston to the end of Eastern Montana, really, you have a chance to come out and meet Rob. Yes, so, and I hope they will. Uh, and that's awesome. So thank you very much for being on the show. Anything, any last words? Or? Let's go get a burrito. I'm starving. <laughs> All right. Thank you, for my, thank you very much for joining in. Just a reminder, everybody, if you go to politicticboom.com, you will see the post on Rob, and there will be links to all of the stuff that we discussed in the show uh, in the post. So thank you very much, and have a great day. Politics is boom.